We are so happy that you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you chose to, to be here, that you chose to, to worship with us this morning. We have been in the Gospel of John the last uh, number of weeks, and uh, a few people come up to me this morning and said, Jeff, you look really rested. Did you sleep well last night? And I said, no, I haven't slept well at all, actually, because I was so excited to get up this morning. This is my first Easter as pastor, and I was very excited to have the opportunity to, to open up God's Word for this morning, and we're in John chapter 20. Where this morning, we're going to talk about doubts. John chapter 20, it's the section of Scripture talking about Thomas, and we know who he is, right? And we're going to talk about doubts, because we all have doubts in some way, at some point. Maybe you have had doubts before about the reliability of Scripture, about God's Word being true. You know, you read stories of, of Moses, you know, standing before the Red Sea. You know, they're, they're fleeing the army, and he stands there. And by the power of God, he raises his arms, and the sea spreads, right? You know, you begin to question that because you drive on Meridian amidst the traffic, and you raise your arms, and nothing happens. How nice that would be. Or you read the story of Jonah, right? And, and fleeing obedience from God, he runs and, and gets on a ship, still fleeing. And uh, God sends a storm and they send him then into the water and he's swallowed up by a big fish. Seems kind of far-fetched even. And he lives for three days before God tells that fish to spit him out. Maybe you have doubts. Is that, is that really, that really happened? Or maybe you're looking at the world around us. The injustice, the hate, the horrendous evil in our world. And again, we read about it. We see it just this week. But what happened in Belgium? And the questions and the doubts that people have, where is God? Why does he allow evil? These are real doubts. These are real questions. I've I have worked through these questions before. I have struggled with those doubts. This morning, Jesus is going to teach us how to work through these doubts. He wants to teach us about belief. I want to talk just a few minutes before we get into the text about this idea of belief, of believing or disbelieving. I listened to a fascinating lecture this week by Tim Keller, who was invited to Google's headquarters a number of years ago to, to talk about his book, The Reason for God. And in this talk, there's a short portion of it where he talks about belief and the three main reasons that we believe something or disbelieve something. And he says there, there are three main reasons you have to, and every time we talk about belief, there are intellectual reasons, personal reasons, and social reasons. So the first one, he says, is an intellectual reason. We believe or do not believe something for intellectual reasons. We, we read the arguments for God or the objections to Christianity, and we think deeply about it. We run it through our intellectual filter and come away with belief or disbelief. The second, though, is, is right in that mix. The next stage is personal reasons for belief or disbelief. You, you cannot escape this because we all have personal reasons for our beliefs. No one believes in God or disbelieves God strictly for intellectual reasons, no matter what they say. Some have had horrible circumstances in their life and those circumstances have affected how you live, how you think, how you feel about God. For some, those horrible circumstances have caused you to, to seek God because you know there's something missing. You, you need peace. And so you look for God. For others, 
those same horrible circumstances have caused you to run away from God, to run away from any notion that there's a God. Two different people can have similar experience that's been difficult and yet have two separate responses. One says, I need God. The other says, I don't. You can also have personal reasons there that are good. For some, they're very successful. They're good at their job. They've made a lot of money. They have security. They have a home. They have all that they want. And so their response is, I don't need God. I have all that I need. They feel satisfied. And still another, in the same position, with the same job, the same income, the same security, the same home, all those same things, realize this is not enough. I need God. I recognize my need for God. I want to know him. So belief comes through intellectual reasons and personal reasons. And the third one he mentions is that people believe or disbelieve because of social reasons. You believe what you believe because of social support or the lack of it. It really has to do with the culture that you're surrounded with. Uh, for us, this really became uh, very right in our face when we moved from the U.S. to Sweden. We lived in Sweden for 13 years, and we lived in Sweden. The social climate was very strong in a disbelief against God. In fact, most Swedes we'd come in contact with would laugh at us, would, would joke with us, would mock us that we would believe in God. For a Swede, they'd much rather believe in leprechauns and unicorns or their Easter bunny than God. So that social climate in Sweden was very strong. There's social pressure there that we experience. The voices were much louder to the defense that there is no God in Sweden. It's not so much the case here in America, but we're, we're heading down that path. We have different social pressure to, to at least consider God. But you may be in a situation socially where even the thought or conversation of God is mocked. So those are three basic reasons why we believe or disbelieve something. And you come here this morning either believing in God, believing in Christianity, believing in the resurrection or not. Those are the reasons for your belief and unbelief. This morning we're going to look at one person and their journey to belief of the risen Christ. And I want you to, to filter what I share with you this morning through those three grids that I gave you. We're going to talk about Thomas. You've heard of him, Doubting Thomas, the skeptic. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 24 through 31 this morning. And the scripture here is on the screen behind me. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger to the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to sit under your word this morning. And we ask God that you would be our teacher here this morning, that you would show us and explain to us what this means and apply it to our life. God, I ask that you would speak through me, that the voice that people hear is from you. It's your word. Father, I pray that we come away changed this morning, different than when we arrived. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. I have two points that I want to cover this morning, real basic, really easy for your outline if you take outlines. First is the doubter and then the believer. The doubter and the believer. And, and here's what I want you to take away from our time here this morning. Our doubts are not the problem, it's unbelief. Our doubts are not the problem, it's unbelief. So the first, the doubter here in verse 24 through 27, as I just read here, is Thomas. He's, he's come now back with the disciples and he comes into the room and and they're excited. They want to share what they've experienced. I feel bad for Thomas, really, in this. I mean, what is he remembered for? Right? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. I mean, other disciples don't have nicknames like Fighting Peter or Judgmental James. But here's Doubting Thomas. And this is a story that, that, that leads into this passage, okay? Mary Magdalene, one of the followers of Jesus, was going to the tomb early Easter morning. And she was going there to anoint Jesus' body, and she sees that the stone is rolled away. And Jesus is gone, and she wants to find him, and then she bumps into him and has a conversation with him, and he's excited. And so in that excitement, she, she turns and runs to find the other disciples, to, to tell them that Jesus is alive. Well, Peter and John very quickly turn and have a foot race back to the tomb. Peter goes in and, and finds that there's no body. There's grave clothes, though, and they're folded. There's no Jesus. And later that evening, Jesus appears to the disciples in the middle of the locked room. He doesn't need a key. But Thomas isn't there. Where's Thomas? Maybe getting Starbucks. He's not there. They don't know, and he misses it. So we come to our passage here this morning. The disciples are eager. They're eager to tell Thomas that they've seen Jesus. But he has nothing to do with it. He doesn't believe. In fact, he says he won't believe. He is refusing to believe that Jesus is alive. Why? Why is he struggling to believe that Jesus has come back? Well, here's what I believe. Here's what I think. I think he struggles. I think he has doubts because he remembers seeing Jesus on the cross. He saw him die. Thomas seems to get a bad rap, and we call him Doubting Thomas, but wouldn't you doubt that Jesus is now alive after seeing what he experienced? Now, Thomas is there for almost three years of his ministry. He was there 24-7 for two years of that. Every day, every moment, Walking with Jesus, 
eating with Jesus, talking with Jesus, watching miracle after miracle, hoping and desiring that Jesus was now here to make things better. And he would be the one that would establish a new kingdom, a new rule, and he would make all things new. This hell on earth would soon be turned to heaven. You know, have you ever waited for something, been promised something, and then you get a taste of it and it's gone? It vanishes? Thomas saw Jesus. He experienced Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He loved Jesus. And then he sees Jesus die. And all the belief that was welling up inside of Thomas for two plus years was gone in a flash when they nailed him to that tree. And you can see it in Thomas's heart. You can see and understand why he's struggling in verse 25. He says, unless I see his hands, the mark of his nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. He's saying, I, I, I saw what they did to him just three days earlier. Could so many lies be told in one trial? Could so much sin be poured into one courtroom? You know, the drowning ones that he had come to rescue throw Jesus off the lifeboat. And Pilate, what does he do? He, he washed away centuries of Roman justice in his finger bowl. He wanted nothing to do with it. And the Savior is given over to men quite different than the, the disciples that were with him. You know, the face that Moses so longed and begged to see is now slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth and its rebellion are now twisted and placed on top of Jesus' head. Jesus' backside and legs were shredded like the Judean fields outside the city. And the people would scream and mock, Hail, King of the Jews, save yourself. And they spit on him and they mocked him. He was no longer recognizable. And they took him out and nailed him to a cross. His arms stretched out and nails driven deep into his hands and feet. Thomas was there. Thomas saw his savior struggling to breathe. Thomas was there in the ninth hour when darkness, complete darkness covered the earth as the sin of the human race was heaped on Jesus. Thomas was there when Jesus cries out in the loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thomas was there. Those words must have been ringing in his ears still. And the sounds, the sounds of screaming and wailing. It just happened a few days ago. Thomas remembers and the, and the smell, the smell of death. He remembers. Thomas remembers seeing his blood-stained face and Jesus crying out, it is finished, as he takes his last breath. Thomas stood there and looked up as the soldiers came to check to see if Jesus was dead in order to break his legs because this crucifixion could not go any longer into the day. They had other things to do. And they found him dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water ran out. And the scripture was fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
and they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thomas was there. Thomas heard the cries of Jesus' mother weeping at the sight of her son now crucified. Thomas remembers. He probably feels a betray. A betray. How, how could Jesus, how could this happen? He was just beginning to sink deep into belief of Christ and all that he was going to do in the future. But then he dies and he doubts that anything good will happen now. And so Thomas doubts and he demands evidence. In verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Eight days later, a week, Sunday to Sunday, the Sunday after the resurrection of Jesus and Thomas is with them now. We're not told whether he spent the whole week with the disciples, but we do know, and I already mentioned verse 24, he wasn't there the first time. And the evening of the resurrection, Thomas was not there. And one thing that came to my mind I need to address this morning is the simple fact that as believers, you really miss, you really miss a lot when you're not gathered together as the church. Thomas was missing when Jesus first appeared to the disciples and he missed an incredible blessing. There were consequences for Thomas missing that first appearance. He missed out on peace that came to the others. What does Thomas experience in light of him missing? I mean, can you imagine this? We are just talking about it afterwards with Anne, someone who was here from the first service. But he believes Jesus is dead. And if you believe someone's dead, what do you do? You grieve. So that whole week, Thomas is grieving. He's not having a party. He's not moved on. The Savior, the one he gave up his life to follow, he believes is dead. He has no peace. And he experiences a full week of ignorance to the fact that Jesus is really alive. And I want to encourage you, church, to watch your priorities on Sunday mornings. So I want to encourage you to make your time with your church a, a priority. You know, the very sermon that we needlessly miss just might contain a precious word in a season of life that is really hard. You know, a simple conversation we might have with another brother or sister in Christ on a Sunday morning may be the encouragement that we need for the week to come in difficulty in our job or our family or our friends. So I want to encourage you not to forsake the assembling together as Hebrew warns us. Thomas missed out on comfort and he missed out on peace because he was not with the other disciples. And yet, Christ doesn't leave him there. Even in the midst of it, Christ is gracious and he visits him again. And I want you to notice at the end of verse 26, he says, although the doors were locked, you can try to lock the door, folks. You can try to keep yourself hidden, but Jesus will find you. Jesus is showing that there's no locked doors that will keep him out, silly disciples. You know, they're huddled again in fear in a locked room and Jesus, who is God, comes right into their midst. He doesn't need a key. 
He doesn't even need their permission. Jesus doesn't knock. How unpolite. He just comes. He's standing there, standing among them and saying, peace be with you. I mean, think about this from Thomas's vantage point. He, he thinks he's dead. He doesn't believe. And there he is, and he says, peace be with you. You know, the last thing that I would feel is peace at that point, right? I mean, think about this. Your house is locked. Your kids are in bed. You're in bed, and you roll over, and there I am. <laughs> peace be with you. I think the last emotion you would feel is peace. You turn around and slug me in the face. But Jesus knows what he's doing here. He knows the need of the moment and what's needed is peace. Their lives have been completely rocked, turned upside down. They need peace, real peace, lasting peace. What can you learn from this verse here? Look at verse 27. See Jesus' response, Thomas. He says, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. He's saying, Thomas, do not persist in your disbelief, but become a believer. Do you see the patience of God in his response to Thomas? You will see that all of Thomas's fears are just blown away. Do you know one of the reasons I believe Thomas was blown away by that is, says, how, did, how did Jesus know that Thomas said these words earlier? I mean, he basically responds right in line. How did he know this? Did Jesus have a spy that went back to Jesus and said, hey, did you hear what Thomas is saying about you? He doesn't believe you're alive. No. Jesus knew because Jesus is God. He is omniscient. He knows all. And Thomas realizes that Jesus is God, that he has been listening, that he's seen everything about him and all his fears. He realizes that Jesus knows him. He knows him better than anyone else knows him. And that he's been right there. It was reminded this week of a movie called The Fisher King. Everyone ever heard of that movie? It was made in the early 90s. It's a movie where Robin Williams plays this homeless man. And, and he's in this movie, he's, he's it's set up by him watching and observing this, this girl. It's in New York City, and he's, he's observed her. She's clumsy and lonely. She doesn't have any friends, doesn't have anyone nearby. And so after time and time and time goes by, he's, he's watching her, and he begins to fall in love with her. But she's, she's a type that's you know, clumsy, and she wants to stay away from people. She's a little odd. And yet... This man, Robin Williams, falls for. But he also has his friend, Jeff Bridges, and in this movie, he comes along to help him. He's like, I, I want to ask her out, but he's homeless. He doesn't have any clothes. He doesn't look very good. And so his buddy helps him, cleans him up, gets him a suit, gets him all cleaned up to ask this girl out. And she says yes. And they go on this date, and, and the date is completed. And, and he's walking her back to her apartment. And she's telling him how, how much she had a good time, how much the conversation was, was good and stimulating, how much she really appreciated and when she gets to the door, she says, I'm, I'm sure you don't ever want to go out with me again. And then she says, but even if you do want me to go out again, I don't want to. I don't want you to go out with me again. I don't want you to go out with me again because if you get to know me, 
you won't like me. If you, if you really know who I am, you won't want anything to do with me, she says. And Robin Williams responds, he's like, you, you, you don't understand. I've been watching, I've been observing you, and then, you know, I begin to wonder, he's a creep, you know, right? He's been watching her. But he's been telling her, you know, like, I know where you go to, to lunch, and I see this, and I see that your neighbors don't talk to you, and that people treat you in a poor way, and that you're, you're clumsy in this way, and this and that, and he just starts describing her. And he says, I know all of this about you. And you know what? I still want you. And he says, I love you. I want to see you again. And this girl and her response is just in awe. She doesn't know what to do. She's in awe of, of what's happening and, and reaches out and, and touches his face and says, are you real? Are you real? You know, you know if, if Robin Williams will do that for you, what will Jesus do? Right? And he's just a human being who can't possibly know everything about you. I mean, he's, he's saying, I, I've seen you. I've, I've observed you. I've seen your flaws and I still love you. But here's Jesus who shows up and he knows all of Thomas's flaws. He knows all of Thomas's broken promises. He knows all of Thomas's doubting moments and he says, I am here. You can see me and you can reach out and you can touch me. I am real. I have watched you, Thomas. I have been patient with you, Thomas, and I am here. This is Jesus. And he's saying the same thing to you this morning. He's saying, I know you. I really know you. I've seen your fears. I've heard your doubts. I've seen your flaws. I've heard all the stupid things that you've said, all of your broken promises. I've seen you at the very bottom, and I know all about you. And I still want you. Jesus says, I love you. I'm standing here with my nail-scarred hands and a pierced side to show you that I love you. I died for you. Folks, God has been patient with you and me. And he's been with us all along. If you're in unbelief, God is patient with you. And he's brought you here this morning. And God desires for you to believe. He's patient with Thomas and he's patient with you. But please know that that patience will run out. Every moment we are closer to the time when Christ will come back and his patience will be done. So I would encourage you as, as Jesus did to Thomas, do not persist in your disbelief. Become a believer. So we've seen the unbeliever, now we see Thomas as the believer. Verses 28 through 31. We can read that Thomas has changed I don't, I don't know if he realized how much of a skeptic he really was, but he's no longer in belief. He believes in verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. You know, at the sight of Jesus Christ, all of his doubts vanish away. And, and I need to say bluntly here this morning, you're not a Christian if you don't agree with Thomas. 
You may be beginning to understand Christianity and to learn about God and understand the gospel, but if you don't affirm what Thomas is saying here, you're rejecting God. It's the same challenge that Jesus gave Thomas. I say to you, do not disbelieve any longer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You either fully accept Jesus or you're rejecting him. There's no in-between in scriptures. And the point of the gospels, the point of the gospel of John from Jesus' vantage point is what he's preaching to people is that either crown me or kill me. There's not an in-between. There's not a, well, let me consider this and see how life goes. There is not that. It is all or nothing with God. And until you see Jesus as your Lord and your God and that he's the center of your life, you will truly not know God. You know, he's gone to great lengths to tell us about himself, to give us his word that we can read and understand it. And notice you know, Thomas's re reaction here. You know, he, he doesn't need to touch Jesus. He doesn't need to reach out. And what we learn from this is that you don't need to have those conditions. We actually need to drop the conditions before believing in God. You know, Thomas had conditions. He says, I need to touch your nail-scarred hands. I need to feel your side where you're pierced, or I won't believe. He places conditions on belief, but then he realizes that he's wrong. You know, there's so many in our culture today, maybe some of you here this morning, that are coming to God with a condition. You're saying, if you save my sister, God, then I'll believe. God, if you give me money for this week to get through, I'll believe. Then I'll believe, God, if, if you do this. And if that's the case, whatever the blank is, that's your savior. That's your real God. And folks, whatever this is, it won't die for you. But it will demand that you die for it. What we learn from this is that we need to drop our conditions and believe. Thomas says, you are the one who rules over me. You are my Lord. And you are the God whom I worship. And then Jesus responds to him in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Folks, there you are, okay? If you believe, if you trust in Christ, we're the blessed. That's us. We are the blessed ones here that Jesus is talking about. None of us have seen Jesus face to face, but we will. Even though we haven't seen him with our own eyes, we have heard from him in his word. We have experienced salvation and understand the gospel and believe that the only way to be redeemed, the only way to be saved, the only way to see Jesus Christ is through the blood of Jesus Christ that he poured out on our behalf on Friday. Folks, we are not on a ship of fools. We are on the winning side. And in verse 30, he says, Jesus, John's writing, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You know, I found it interesting this week as I studied this, when John writes this, that other things that are not included. Did you realize that the gospel of John only covers 21 days of Jesus' life? Only 21 days of three and a half years of ministry. 
You know, there are 10 chapters in this gospel that cover one week of ministry. One third of the 879 verses in the gospel cover a single 24-hour period. And so when John says there are other things, understand it from that vantage point. There are a lot of other things. And the point is, John is being very selective. He's being very selective when he writes this book for us. And he's saying for us this morning, the main reason for writing this book, the main thrust, the main point of all of this is verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why the Gospel of John is the book that we encourage people to, to read when they want to learn about God. If you're curious, if you're here and you're not sure about God or Christianity, what it means to be saved, continue, go back into the Gospel of John, read, read it again and again. We, we send people that way. I send people that way because we want people to learn about Jesus, to learn about the Gospel, to realize and understand that they're sinners, but that Christ came to redeem them. We want people to believe with us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that they would have life. Folks, real life comes through Jesus Christ. The life that we live outside of our belief is just a mirage. It's not really real. Real life happens in our belief and trust in Christ. So belief is the name of the game for John here in writing this book. Now, being a Christian is not about trying to follow the moral example of Jesus. You can't do it completely. You will fail. We need to believe in Christ. This is the point of Easter, right? It's about belief. Now, we don't have to go to the, start, the extreme like we're gonna have roast bunny for dinner because people, our kids need to know about Jesus. That was a joke, by the way. We're not having roast bunny. <laughs> Traditions are a good thing, okay? It's not a bad thing to be a part of Easter egg hunts. Our girls were part of it yesterday. Elbowing, running for eggs, right, Madeline? You know, it's, it's not a bad thing to have traditions. Chocolate bunnies are a good thing. I'm gonna experience one later. <laughs> Ham for dinner, right? All those things are good. But this day is so much more than those traditions. This day reminds us again that Jesus is alive. This day preaches to us that the resurrection is true and that it changes everything. Philosophy doesn't change anything. Teaching doesn't change anything. Right thinking doesn't change anything. Moral living doesn't change anything. The resurrection changes everything. Your past is changed because of the resurrection. It means that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted and now you're new. Your present is changed because of the resurrection. You have a risen savior. Someone you can talk to, someone that will come into your life and will transform you. Your future is changed because of the resurrection. You're gonna live forever in a rehab body, in a rehabbed earth. No more pain, no more suffering. Folks, the resurrection changes everything. 
He is risen. He is alive. So if you've come this morning and you haven't experienced belief, I want to challenge you. Stop disbelieving and believe in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to meet with you, to read your word, to hear your word preached. And Father, I pray for those that are here this morning, new to our church. Thank you, God, that you've brought them here. I'm thankful they're here. I pray that your word would sink deep within their hearts that they would spend time reading this and understanding this. I pray that they would believe and the promises that we have through belief that we will have new life. God, I pray that the questions that people have will be brought to people that love you. Friends or family that invited them here, I pray that we'll have good discussions this afternoon. Father, I pray for those here this morning that are trusting, that are believing in you, but are struggling. And their heart begins to race to disbelief in other areas. I pray that they're reminded again that you're not anti-doubt. That you answer our doubts. You've given us your word. I pray that they would Trust again, trust afresh again in you and believe in you and trust in you with their life, with their decisions, with their day-to-day, what's happening in life. May they run to you and not to worry. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.